For our Old Testament reading this morning, we're looking at Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2, we'll be reading the whole chapter. It's page 805 in the church Bible if you'd like to follow along there. Loved ones, this is God's holy word. Let's give it our full, undivided attention. Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, for it is at hand. A day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like the morning clouds spread over the mountains. A people come, great and strong, the like of whom has never been seen, nor will there ever be any such after them. Even for many successive generations, a fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, and behind them like a desolate wilderness. Surely nothing shall escape them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like swift steeds, so they run, with a noise like chariots. Over mountaintops they leap, like the noise of a flaming fire that devours the stubble, like a strong people set in battle array. Before them, the people writhe in pain. All faces are drained of color. They run like mighty men. They climb the wall like men of war. Everyone marches in formation, and they do not break ranks. They do not push one another. Everyone marches in his own column. Though they lunge between the weapons, they are not cut down. They run to and fro in the city. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses. They enter at the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and moon grow dark, and the stars diminish their brightness. The Lord gives voice before his army, for his camp is very great, for strong is the one who executes his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? Now, therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping and with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. Who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a sacred assembly. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders, gather the children and nursing babes. Let the bridegroom go out from his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. Let the priests who minister to the Lord weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, O Lord, and do not give your heritage to reproach, that the nations should rule over them. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Then the Lord will be zealous for his land and pity his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I will send you grain and new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied by them. I will no longer make you a reproach among the nations. But I will remove far from you the northern army and will drive him away into a barren and desolate land with his face toward the eastern sea and his back toward the western sea. His stench will come up and his foul odor odor will rise because he's done monstrous things. Fear not. O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done marvelous things. Do not be afraid, you beasts of the field, for the open pastures are springing up. 
and the tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and the vine yield their strength. Be glad then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. For He has given you the former rain faithfully, and He will cause the rain to come down for you, the former rain and the latter rain in the first month. The threshing floors shall be full of wheat, and the vats shall overflow with new wine and oil. So I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the crawling locust, the consuming locust, and the chewing locust. My great army which I sent among you, you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you, and my people shall never be put to shame. Then you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. I am the Lord your God and there is no other. My people shall never be put to shame. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and on my maid servants I will pour out my Spirit in those days. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. Sends the reading of our Old Testament text this morning, which speaks there so powerfully of the day of the Lord as a day of judgment and as a day of salvation. Judgment, salvation, accompanied by His Spirit coming on His people. And that day of the Lord is what we'll see Paul take up and discuss here in 1 Thessalonians 5 in our New Testament text. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1 through 11. Paul here talking about this day of the Lord that's coming and what it means for how we should live. So, loved ones, again, this is God's Word. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let those who are of the day be sober putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's ask him to bless it to us now. Father, we confess that apart from the work of your Holy Spirit, our hearts are hard and will not hear your word, and we will profit nothing by it. 
we cannot, we cannot plant it in our hearts and bear fruit in ourselves. So would you please, by your sovereign work, even as you, even as you uh, created all things by the word of your power, so recreate us in the image of Christ by the power of your word once again. We pray for Jesus' dear sake. Amen. The Christian life requires discipline, focus, and clarity, and concentration. Requires that we are awake and watchful. We can't afford to doze on our pilgrimage to heaven. That's Paul's point here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 in these first few verses here that we're looking at this morning. Sometimes you doze and it doesn't have a bad effect. It's not deadly. Um, there was a particular class I remember early on in my college years. It was on a, it was on, I think it was a Tuesday afternoon, maybe Thursdays as well, in a warm, sunny room in the second story. And uh, the teacher's voice was a nice, smooth monotone. And, and it, without fail, no matter how much coffee I brought to class, I would doze. Uh, uh, thankfully, it wasn't a fatal thing. I still pass the class by God's grace. But there are other situations where drowsiness is deadly, aren't there? You're driving down the highway late at night, going 75, cruise control's on, and your eyelids start to droop, and you, can't, you just can't seem to, 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 to stay awake. And you, you, you can't afford, though, you know you can't afford to sleep. That if you do fall asleep, then it could be deadly for you. You have to stay alert and awake. And that is the type of alertness that's the type of uh, stakes that are involved in the Christian life. That's the kind of alertness we must maintain. We have to stay alert and awake in the spiritual matters in our faith because the dangers are too great and the consequences are too severe if we don't. This is what Paul is saying in the text. Stay awake. Why? Because the day of the Lord is coming. You belong to that day. God has destined you for that day. So live in the light of it. Stay awake. Three headings as we look through, uh, look, look together at these verses. First, the day of the Lord, in verses 1 through 5. Second, the duty of watchfulness, verses 6 through 8. And third, the destiny of the elect, in verses 9 through 11. So first... The day of the Lord, looking here at verses 1 through 5. Paul uses this key phrase here, the day of the Lord. Uh, what does he mean? What is the day of the Lord? Uh, it, it's not an expression that's, that Paul is, is making up. He's drawing on a rich Old Testament background as he uses the phrase, the day of the Lord. We saw this already in our, our text in, in Joel, chapter 2. Joel refers to it, but so do also many of the other prophets. Isaiah uses the, this phrase, the day of the Lord. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, and Zephaniah all use this phrase. It's a common thing in the prophets to speak of the day of the Lord. As we saw there in Joel 2, it, it, it usually refers to God bringing judgment, often on his faithless people. Many times in the prophets, it's referring to the imminent judgment that's going to come from Babylon as they drive the people into exile. So this day of the Lord refers to judgment for sin, but it also means salvation for God's people. As, as God brings judgment on those who are faithless, and, and, and uh, also he'll bring judgment on the enemies of God's people, and he's going to save a faithful remnant of his people through that judgment. 
We saw this earlier in Joel chapter 2, verse 11. The day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? But then the Lord promises there in Joel 2 that if the people do repent, it won't be a day of judgment, but a day of judgment that leads to salvation for them. Verse 20 says, But I will remove far away from you the northern army and will drive him away into a barren and desolate land. So that's the day of the Lord in, in Joel. Judgment, also salvation, uh, salvation that comes through God's judgment on our enemies. And then also in Joel we see the coming of the Holy Spirit. Verse 29 and uh, excuse me, verse 28 and 29 in Joel 2 say, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And verse 29, I'll pour out my Spirit in those days. So Joel is saying the day of the Lord is going to be a day of salvation for God's people through judgment on God's enemies accompanied by God pouring out His Spirit on them. Well, as we saw, as we read through Joel 2, um, the images and descriptions of that day are dramatic and vivid. Uh, Joel 2.31 says, The sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood. So that, that imagery really grabs our attention, that this is a scene of the end of the world when the whole universe is coming unraveled under the judgment of God, and it grabs our imaginations, and it, it always has grabbed people's imaginations to think about the end of the world, the, the final day of the Lord, when he brings his judgment to pass. But all too often, this, uh, this then leads on to unhealthy speculation, doesn't it? It's always attracted our interest. Uh, it sells uh, speculation about the, the day of the Lord, um, uh, sells lots of books and, uh, uh, and, and films. There's uh, even a website called the Rapture Index, which plays off this. Uh, it has a prophetic speedometer. It takes these different factors of false Christs and occult things and unemployment, inflation, interest rates, globalism, uh, volcanoes, earthquakes, plagues. It takes all these things, it gets all this data, and it gives us a, a metric, it says, about when the rapture will happen, when the day of the Lord will come. According to the website, the rapture index, it's lower now than it's been since December of 1933, uh, for what that's worth. Paul doesn't want any of this going on at the church in Thessalonica. He doesn't want any of this going on there, none of this speculation. He says to them in verses 1 to 2, But concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. He's saying don't speculate about when the day of the Lord will come because you know it's going to come unexpectedly as a thief in the night. A thief doesn't come when you have planned for him to come. He takes you by surprise. Paul describes how sudden this surprise will be. He says, when they say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. So he's saying when the world least expects it, when they're at ease, when they're confident in themselves, comfortable in themselves, and everything they've achieved, that's when the Lord will come. So the text is saying so clearly, we don't know. We shouldn't know. We can't know when the Lord will come in judgment. So we shouldn't try to speculate. That's the first thing Paul says here. We shouldn't try to speculate about when the day of the Lord will come because we don't know when it will come. But then he also says that it's not just that we don't know when the Lord will come. 
He also wants the, the Thessalonians to know that the day of the Lord is inevitable. That, it, that it, it, we don't know when it's coming, but we absolutely know it is coming. It's inevitable. He contrasts this with the world's attitude. Uh, the world doesn't think the Lord is coming. They think the day of the Lord is something they can avoid. But, but Paul says, you Christians, you know the day of the Lord is, uh, is unavoidable. God has a set date when He will come in judgment. It's been set in His decree from all eternity and nothing will change it. Paul brings this out as he compares the coming of the day of the Lord to a woman going into labor. You cannot avoid it. He says this. He also tells them they know the day of the Lord is imminent. They know it's going to be soon. So they, they, they don't know when it will be. They know it will be. They know it will be soon. Even as they don't know when, they also know it will be soon. He says something really surprising in, in verse 4. He says, But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. That's interesting, right? Because in verse 2 he says, uh, This day is going to come like a thief in the night. So we don't know when it will come. But then in verse 4 he says, You're not in darkness, that the day should overtake you as a thief. In other words, Christians, we don't know when the Lord will come. But we're not going to be surprised when he comes. We know it's going to be soon. We don't know when. The Thessalonians knew it would be soon. We know it will be soon. Paul explains in verse 5 about this. He says, You were all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. So this is the reason why we're not taken by surprise when the day of the Lord comes. Because we're sons of the light and sons of the day. In other words, he's saying, we're not taken by surprise when the day of the Lord comes because we belong to that day. That day is our native air. That's our home. We, that, that, that is where we find all our hope and that's where we belong. We are children of the day of the Lord. It's a reality. In a sense, the day of the Lord is a reality. The Christian already lives in. It's as though the day has already begun to dawn and the Christians are living in light of that. Over in Acts chapter 2, it's Pentecost. Uh, Peter is preaching. And he, he preaches on Joel chapter 2, which we read earlier. And he tells the people there that that prophecy about the last days, the day of the Lord, and the pouring out of the Spirit is happening in front of their very eyes. He says, this is fulfilled right now, right in front of your eyes. The, these are the latter days. This is the beginning, as it were, of the day of the Lord. Paul is saying the same thing here in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 5. You are children of the day. You have been, uh, the, the Holy Spirit has been poured out on you, signifying the day of the Lord is coming. Uh, this is your identity now. You're people of the day of the Lord, the day of salvation that's coming. And you're looking forward to the great and uh, glorious consummation of that day that is to come. All right, so that's, that's the day of the Lord. That's what Paul means. And uh, he, he's, he's telling us, reminding us, we belong to that day, that day of judgment and salvation and the pouring out of the Spirit. Okay, then, Paul, what does it mean for us? If the day of the Lord has begun in Christ, what does it mean? mean for us. If the day of the Lord is going to come soon, inevitably, if we are to be a people defined by that day, how should we live? That's what we see next in verses 6-8. through eight. Paul 
describes for us the duty of watchfulness in verses 6 through 8. He says in verse 6, Therefore let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. We've seen the day of the Lord dawn in Christ and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. We know the full sense of the day of the Lord of judgment and salvation is coming at the end of all things when the Lord uh, comes down in judgment on the whole earth. And, And because we know these things, then we need to be always watchful and ready. And John Bunyan's great allegory of the Christian life, the Pilgrim's Progress, Christian, the main character, is going on this pilgrimage to the celestial city, to heaven. And part of the pilgrimage that he goes on has to go through a place called the Enchanted Ground. It's a place that that lulls you to sleep. The air almost drugs you into drowsiness as you walk through this place. And Christian's companion, hopeful, as he's walking through this with Christian, gets gets really tired. He says to the Christian, "Let's, let's lie down and sleep. Surely a little rest would be good for us and strengthen us. But Christian warns him that this is not the place to rest. This is a deadly rest. You fall asleep here in the enchanted ground and you don't wake up. And this is exactly, loved ones, what God is uh, urging on us here. that, that, That we cannot be drowsy and waiting for the day of the Lord. God commands us to spiritual watchfulness. Loved ones, it's not easy. Um... The world, like that enchanted ground in the Pilgrim's Progress, makes us drowsy. It dulls our spiritual senses. Sin does this, right? When we walk in sin, we get, we get dulled to the things of God if, if we're not repenting of it and, and, and seeking to fight it by God's grace. But it's not just outright sins, is it? It's also just the, 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 the busyness of our lives that can dull us and make us drowsy in the things of God. We are under a barrage of entertainment and information and things clamoring for our time and our attention. We have these devices in our pockets that clamor for all of our attention. They're designed to grab it and keep it. And we get busy with so many things, with work and family and hobbies and all these things. And they're, they're good things that we need to be busy with. But we can get spiritually drowsy if we don't keep them in the proper place. They can tempt us to relax and feel very much at home here. And our spiritual senses get inebriated by too much of these things in in a sinful way. But loved ones, um, that drowsiness, that is is to belong to this, this world and not to belong to the day of the Lord that's coming. And Paul says, he reminds us here, you are the people who belong to that day. So live in the light of it. So cultivate watchfulness, spiritual alertness. How do we do this? How do we work on staying wide awake to the things of God in light of the coming day of the Lord? Well, we have to maintain a priority of the unseen things over the seen things. Machen writes this, The things in which the world is now interested are the things that are seen. But the things that are seen are temporal the things that are not seen are eternal. He's echoing, of course, Paul's words. But, but um, do the things that are, se- that are seen, the visible things, do they matter? Of course they matter, uh, but they aren't ultimate. The unseen things are. The invisible world, the kingdom of heaven, that's what lasts. That's what's most important in our lives. It should have priority for us over the affairs of the world, however important the issues of our day might be, 
The things of first importance, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, are the death and resurrection of Christ, the invisible things, the things of God. So we maintain spiritual watchfulness insofar as we maintain the priority of spiritual things, the things of God, things of His kingdom, as we maintain that priority over the things of this earth and in the things of this earth. Right? Not just that we prioritize the things of God and then in the second place we have the things of earth, but that we in the first place have the things of God and the things of earth we, we have for God's sake. We're seeking spiritual ends in those earthly things. As much as we don't do this, as much as we neglect this, then we will get spiritually sleepy and spiritually drunk. Our senses will become dull, we'll lose our appetite for the things of God, and we'll get lazy in the, the fight against sin. Um, again, this doesn't probably look like a, a, a lot of outward sin, but it's the, the becoming too busy for God that, that so often plagues our lives. And uh, this happens to us, and before you know it, we've forgotten that we don't belong here. We forget that uh, the day of the Lord is coming. We become dominated by our agenda instead of His. So, loved ones, we must stay awake. Paul tells us in verse 8 how we are to do this, the, the, the manner of this spiritual watchfulness. Listen to verse 8. He says, Let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. It's a great picture, isn't it, that Paul gives? This is, this is the Christian's calling. To be watchful like this. Here's the picture. Like a, like a soldier, or even a sentry, uh, guarding at the point of the enemy lines. Sentries can't afford to get drowsy and fall asleep when they're on their shift. They have to stay awake. They can't, get, they can't get drunk when they're on the job. The result would be catastrophic. And Paul says the Christian life is this, warfare. You can't afford to fall asleep. The temptations of sin will come and overwhelm you if you do. To, to take a metaphor that might be more familiar for us, we could picture it like being defensive linemen in football. We're practiced, we're poised, we're ready. Uh, as soon as that football moves, we are going to be ready to spring into action. We're alert and awake. That's the vigorous picture of wake, wakefulness that Paul calls us to. Loved ones, does that describe how you live the Christian life? With that watchfulness and readiness how do we arm ourselves? Paul says, the breastplate of faith and love, the helmet of the hope of salvation. We need to guard ourselves, Paul says. We need to be watchful by putting on three things. Faith, love, and hope. Sounds familiar, right? First Thessalonians 1, the beginning of this little letter, he writes, remember without, I remember without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, patience of hope. It's a common theme. Paul said at the start of this letter, he sees these great three core virtues in the Christians there. And now at the end of the letter, he's saying, keep on in them, keep on putting them on. These are your spiritual armor. Without these things, you'll be vulnerable and you won't be alert. So the first, let's look at, the, look at, let's look at each of them. He says, we need, to, we need to keep putting on faith. Put on faith. What, what is faith? That's receiving and resting on Christ alone for salvation. This is remarkable that Paul says this is our armor, isn't it? 
that, that we stay alert in the Christian life and stay watchful in the Christian life, not by first doing something, but by trusting in Christ and what He's done. That this is our breastplate. By, by We rest in Him. We trust in Him. We run back to Him. This point is, is vital, loved ones. And it's even clearer when we look at the context as Paul discusses um, uh, this, this armor here. Um, he's not just picking up on a good metaphor for the Christian life. He's picking up on a, a visual the Old Testament gives us of armor. Back in Isaiah 59, 17, the Lord is the one who clothes himself with the armor of righteousness. Isaiah 59:17 He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. So Paul is picking up on this that, that in the Old Testament the great divine warrior God comes and clothes himself with this armor. Uh, he's the one who brings about salvation and judgment. And Paul is saying, you are people who belong to him. You are to put on the armor Christ wore. Indeed, we could say you are, to, you are to put on Christ. Clothe yourselves with Him. Clothe yourselves with, with His watchfulness. So the entire orientation of everything Paul is saying here, do you see, is, is oriented towards trusting in Christ. He also calls us to put on love. Love for God and love for each other. Another great theme in the letter of Thessalonians uh, that that we've heard Paul say so much about how he loves this church, how they love him, how they love one another, how they love their whole region uh, so well. And he's commending them for this and he's calling them to more of it. If we're going to be spiritually watchful, we've got to trust Christ and we've got to love God and love one another. That's the second piece. The third thing he says we need to put on is the hope of salvation. Again, it's interesting here. Other places in Scripture, we see this triad, faith, love, and hope, in a different order. 1 Corinthians 13, most famously, faith, hope, and love. But here in 1 Thessalonians, twice now, Paul's given us this triad, and which one comes last? Faith, love, and hope. And he's, he's reminding them that hope, uh, he's putting that there in this place of emphasis because the Thessalonians are a suffering church. Um, they need hope in the coming of the Lord. They have gone through so much since Paul came and preached the gospel to them. They need this hope. This hope is in the final completion of their salvation. It's a certain confidence. Paul says it's like a helmet. This is a steel hope, not a wishy-washy thing. You can put it on. The certain confidence, Jesus is coming back to judge the world and save me. I belong to him. My full salvation is coming. Paul says that will keep you watchful and wide awake in the Christian life. Now, uh, in his triad of virtues here, Paul ends with the hope of salvation in Christ. He ends with this because this is his great emphasis. He's calling the Thessalonians to hope, to have confidence in, the coming day of the Lord. And he knows that they won't be watchful if they're not hoping in that day. So let's look now at the final heading and unpack this, the destiny of the elect. This is the object of their hope, their salvation here in our third heading, verses 9 through 11. 
the destiny of the elect. Why should we go through all this effort, Paul, to be watchful and wide awake in the Christian life? It's a lot of work. It'd be much easier to lie down and take a break. Take a day off from sanctification once in a while. Uh, but Paul says, no, we, we cannot. Why? Why? Why is it worth it? Because of what Paul says in verse 9, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. God didn't destine us for wrath. He destined us for what? For glorious salvation in Christ. Paul says, you've been appointed for this. God chose you for this. You didn't choose it, didn't earn it, don't deserve it. God chose you for it, out of His grace. He chose you for salvation. And that should give us such a, such a confidence and such a hope that we should, we should uh, be, be, be uh, eager to be watchful and ready. What is this salvation Paul's talking about? Well, of course, he means our salvation from the wrath of God and the cross of Christ. There's a past tense aspect to the salvation here, that, that Christ has come, he's died for me, and it's done, and I've been saved from the wrath of God by his death for me. We've been justified, we've been given his record of righteousness, so that I stand before God perfectly righteous, not in myself, but in him. That's part of the salvation we have, but the salvation we have is much bigger than that, isn't it? Notice how Paul talks about this salvation as a future thing here. So he doesn't just have in mind our justification, that, that especially the past tense aspect of it. He's also especially talking about everything God is going to do to bring his people to himself in glory. Isn't that, the, isn't that what the day of the Lord is all about in the Old Testament text we read? That God would bring his people into into a perfect place of peace and rest and fellowship with Him. That's what their salvation looked like, and that's what ours looks like too. The day of the Lord that will come and bring our salvation. As Paul talks about this he, in verses 9 and 10, as he unpacks it, he shows us the means and the end of this salvation he's talking about. He says this in verse 9. He says, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Paul is saying there that salvation has its center and its goal in Jesus Christ. We could say, Paul is saying, Jesus himself is our salvation. He accomplishes it. He's the goal of it. First, he tells us here salvation is through him. Jesus died for us laid down his life, a sacrifice for us. We were drunk and asleep in our sins. Jesus came and woke us from that stupor and gave us new life in himself. He died for us to break the power of sin over us and raise us up into wide awake life in him. Every aspect of our salvation depends on Him. That's what Paul's saying here. And then he says also, Jesus isn't just the means by which our salvation happens. He's the end goal of the whole thing as well. Verse 10, He died for us in order that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. Remember that last week we looked at how Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. They were concerned about those who had fallen asleep, those who died, that they'd miss out in somehow in some way on the resurrection of, of, of uh, the those who are in Christ. 
that they miss out on some of the glory of Christ's return. Paul tells them there, of course, they won't. And Paul seems to be referring back to that here as he says, those who are awake or asleep, we, we're all going to live together with him. Loved ones, this is the, the wonderful goal of everything God has done to save his people through Christ. This is the goal of everything he's done for you so that you could be with him forever. Paul writes in Ephesians 5, 25-27, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her so that he might sanctify her and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word so that he might present her to himself. That is the goal, communion with Christ. We are the bride of Christ and this is what he saved us for. So how do we stay watchful and awake? We are... We are longing for that day, like a bride waiting for her wedding day, staying wide awake and watchful, waiting for his return, because that's what his return is. It's the great day of the Lord when we're brought into communion with him. So, loved ones, let me close with these words from the hymn, I've found a friend of such a friend, which puts this for us so well. Listen to verse 3. It goes like this. I've found a friend. Oh, such a friend, all power to him is given to guard me on my onward course and bring me safe to heaven. Eternal glory gleams afar to nerve my faint endeavor. So now, to watch, to work, to war, and then to rest forever. Let's pray together. Well, Lord, our God, we pray that by your spirit, you would strengthen us in the life and love of our Lord Jesus Christ for watchfulness in this pilgrimage you've placed us on. We thank you for the glorious hope that we have ahead of us. Help us press on towards it. We pray it for Jesus' dear sake. Amen.